Hey there, I'm Christopher Schoenwald and welcome to Life As A, a show intently focused on helping people find their professional pathway by exploring and unearthing the details of jobs from around the world. Hey, how are you doing? Before we get started today, I do have a favor to ask of all of you. I did start a channel over on YouTube in the last year, year and a half or so. And yeah, I'm really trying to promote that. And the reason being is I think the content that I'm putting out here, you know, we're doing all right with some of these guests who are coming on. And I think it deserves to be put in front of more people. And one of the best ways, of course, of doing that is through a platform like YouTube. Now, if you do interact with these videos on YouTube, that algorithm loves it. And that's the only way that it knows to continually share that content, put it in front of more people. So yeah, I could be a little bit biased here, but I think, you know, finding out about some of these careers is great for young people. It's great for mid-career professionals. If you have a second, head on over to YouTube, lifeasa...dot...dot. That's where you can find it. And yeah, like or subscribe. It would help a ton. You know, I think it's about time that we covered one of the oldest work-related endeavors known to humankind. Yeah, I'm talking about farming. But, you know, here at Life As A, we like to throw things at you a little bit sideways from time to time. And that's what I have for you today. We have a guest who's actually engaged within farming, not within the culture or geographic location that he was raised, which, by the way, was the U.S. He's doing it in Japan, but not only in Japan, but on an island in Japan, a fairly remote region within the country. So yeah, there's tons of insights, tons of interesting stories and takes related to that life. You know, what does that entail? What is it all about? This episode will have you covered in all respects, plus a lot more. So I encourage everybody to check it out. And by the way, I'm just going to throw this in there. Not too long ago, this guest actually had the U.S. ambassador and his wife stop by his farm. So, I mean, that's the level of attention that his farm is garnering, that's attracting. And hey, I mean, if his story is interesting enough for some of the highest levels of U.S. government, yeah, it might be for you too. So again, I encourage you to check out this conversation. Well, let me more formally introduce you to him and we can get started. Thomas Klopfer is the owner and operator of Pitchfork Farms, located on Mukashima in Onomichi City, Hiroshima, Japan. And he has used organic, natural, and regenerative farming techniques to revitalize a once-abandoned hillside orchard overlooking the Seto Inland Sea. Now, before coming to Japan, Thomas studied sustainable development agroecology and outdoor experiential education in Boone, North Carolina. During his studies at Appalachian State, he discovered Fukuoka Masanobu, a natural farmer who wrote The One Straw Revolution. Fukuoka described farming that took a minimalist approach to farming, one that didn't require fertilizers, pesticides, herbicides, and even tilling of the soil. Inspired by this book, Thomas visited Japan in 2010 for an internship to possibly learn some of these techniques and see if Japan was a place he could eventually move to. In 2011, Thomas moved to Japan as an English teacher and began his farm project as a hobby farm. The small plot gradually grew over the course of 10 years and has become the base of his operations today. Currently, Pitchfork Farms cultivates over 80 varieties of vegetables between a diverse fruit orchard. 
And Thomas is also engaged with running a CSA, Community Supported Agriculture Subscription Service. And he also sells online, hosts tours and workshops, and trains people who are interested in growing food. The farm also raises chickens, ducks, pigs, and sheep, the very diverse ecosystem that makes up Pitchfork Farms. So with all that stated, here's my conversation with Thomas Klupfer. Yeah, so welcome to the program. How are you doing today, Thomas? Yeah, doing pretty good. Yeah, excited for this talk for a number of different reasons. One, you know, it's interesting that the region of Japan that this show is being produced out of is actually not too far from where your farm is, you know, geographically speaking. So I think that's kind of a, an interesting slant to all of this. Anyway, I do have the first segment lined up, and it is something called Coloring Wikipedia. As my listeners would know, it's basically a segment where I just read off a definition of what the guest does, or sometimes a topic related to the profession. Now, for you, I decided to go with a fairly general kind of catch-all phrase, and also to kind of in recognition of the fact that like farming unto itself, I think a lot of people have some mental imagery attached to that. And I want to kind of dig a little bit deeper than, than that term itself. So I decided to go with something, well, I decided to go with agroecology. And uh, for keen listeners, they might have heard that term come up when I was reading off your, your intro. So let me just read that off for you right now. And afterwards, if you have any comments or things that like you add to it, uh, maybe you can share your comments then. Does it sound all right? All right. Sounds good. Here we go. Agroecology as defined by Wikipedia. So it's the study of the interactions between plants, animals, humans, and the environment within agricultural systems. Agroecology uses different sciences to understand elements of ecosystems such as soil properties and plant-insect interactions as well as using social sciences to understand the effects of farming practices on rural communities, economic constraints to developing new production methods, or cultural factors determining farming practices. So first take, what do you think of that? Yeah, I think it's, it's right on. I mean, with what I studied in undergrad, all of those factors, plant, animal, uh, insect, and human interactions that we see here on our farm, some of those principles of what we try to put into our farm from the beginning. And one of the other sides that you mentioned, the socioeconomic factors, sometimes don't always come into real fruition with farming right now. We don't consider those, especially in whether it's developing countries or developed countries. We need to think more about who and how our food is being grown, who's growing it, how it's being grown. And so I think it's a it's a much deeper insight into and much more diverse insight into how we can look at farming uh, going ahead and going into the future. Would there be anything that applies from that definition that might have a particular twist on it, just the fact that it's being done within a country like Japan? Well, I think in Japan, we have this concept of satoyama uh, or satoumi. Satoyama being sato is village, and yama is mountain. And so you often would find villages closely attached to their mountains that were in and around the properties and, you know, the constant, uh, you know, human interactions there, sometimes very positive, sometimes can be negative too. And how that could potentially sustain the village and the people around it, but also would, could and potentially sustain, you know, the ecosystem itself. So that interaction is really important there. 
And so in the con- context of Japan, Satoyama, I think, plays a big role. Okay. And you, you'd say that more so, I mean, just from my experiences in Japan, community being a big element, a communal element of, of the culture, you, you would say that that's emphasized a little bit more here versus, say, within the U.S. Mm-hmm. or some other Western markets or yeah, countries. Certainly. I think because of the size and scale of uh, agriculture that takes place here, there are certainly large and you know, much bigger farms than, than what we're doing. But, you know, really, it's it, because it's so mountainous in Japan, it's very difficult to have uh, really large scale production. So you do need a greater community to help manage and maintain the spaces. Well, maybe we could slide into this other segment here, Thomas, a day in the life. And basically the, the aim as it, you know, as it sounds like is, is to kind of get a better idea or understanding of what you're involved with on the day to day or even say week to week. Mm. Maybe in the most generalized sense, you could kind of fill this in on on your daily routines and activities. Yeah, at our farm right now, we're farming still somewhat part time. So I'm still working uh, off the farm, which is really common still, even in Japan. There's a lot of part time farmers here. And what we do usually start the morning pretty early these days because there's just so much to get done. We're going into summer now and it already feels like the rainy season. So you're getting the right amount of crops in, getting our seeds in. Uh, So we're planting or transplanting either in the morning. I have animals on the farm too. So I'm usually doing rounds uh, with them, making sure that my animals are fed, making sure they have water usually goes into lunch where lunch right now we have different projects going on whether it's uh, working in the forest recently or going over and we're currently renovating another property uh, house and so we're also doing that as well in the afternoon i like to transplant a lot of stuff because it, it does get hot during the daytime especially in this season and so we're trying to get stuff in get them watered and then in the evening, if I can, we'll have you know food fresh from the farm that day, and uh, from there it's you know checking emails, checking on orders, you know using social media to kind of share what we've done throughout the day or what we've got going on in the week. So that's a typical day in our farm. Yeah. Okay, so you found a degree of structure, you know, through, throughout the the weeks, I suppose, but then also I suppose it's defined by. The, the season that you're in mm. and the, the types of crops that you're working with and Absolutely. some of the aims that you have within that period of the year. Yeah. Yeah. Farming is, I mean, it's, it's, it's so dependent on, you know, the time and day and weather. We really quickly, I'll just throw this question in there as well. I mean, I would imagine, I'm guessing here that based on climate change and all that's been going on, I mean, Japan hasn't been spared from this. I mean, right now it is what I think today was close to 30 degrees. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's it's May when this recording is taking place. Mm-hmm. These aren't typical temperatures, like even in the, say, the last five, seven years. I mean, things seem to be creeping up a little bit. Obviously, that, that must have a degree of impact on the way you approach things, the way you're scheduling, I guess, some of the crops and whatnot. Is that playing into things as well? And you're, you're charting this perhaps? Yeah, I, I you know, I don't, I don't take maybe as many notes as I should. And one of the things that I think, um, going back to agroecology, is really honing in on the biodiversity of our region and our area, um, because we're on an island and in the southern part in Hiroshima. I would say that what we might have grown in this area 50 years ago maybe won't work in 10 or 20 or 30 years. 
correct. And, and if that's the case, well, I think we just have to keep making adjustments. Our farm grows a lot of different varieties of plants, and we reach different points in the year where there's, you know, we can't really see several days or weeks or even months ahead to really know what's going to happen um, because every year has been different with either extreme heat or heavy rains, more mild winters. But having the biodiversity here, having the large number of crops and plants, animals on the farm, I really think maybe it's an advantage in some ways to really try a lot of things. Sometimes I think too, as a foreigner in Japan, I don't bring a lot of the same, you know, culture in terms of food that I, you know, would want to have or need to have or would like to grow. I, I can really branch out and expand and, you know, bring in other crops that I think have done well in those times, but then most people might not know about, or most people might not eat so often. Yeah. Okay. That's really interesting. I mean, it's really interesting in the sense that like the fluidity mm -hmm. of it, I suppose, and, and recognizing that, okay, things are changing and having you know, plan A, B, C, D, mm -hmm. E, F, G, whatever it might be that as things go in this direction, well, maybe I'm just going to adjust my crops and I'm going to go this way. I'm going to plant this particular seed and, and see how things go. And also too, I guess that, that, notion of being flexible mm. and having an open mind towards it as well. I mean, these are sort of insights that insights into farming as a whole that maybe people at a cursory glance wouldn't necessarily, you know, have or wouldn't assume that that's part of it. Like, I think one of the, the preconceptions about that profession or way of life is that it's really rigid and structured and this is how you do things. But the reality of it is I think you have to be fairly flexible, mm. you know, to, to adapt and survive and to keep things growing, I guess. So. Yeah. Well, I do have another segment here and we could get into that one. It's called Pathways. And what I like to do here is just find out how the person made their way into the present line of work that they're involved in. And nine times out of 10, at least on this program, most people kind of find their ways into what they're doing, not by chance per se, but like sometimes serendipity. It's, it's, it's never the straight line. There's zigging, zagging, left-hand turns, right-hand turns. And I'd love to rewind a little bit here into your past and find out you know, what led you to where you're at right now? I mean, were you involved, say, in a farm in the U.S. before coming to Japan? Or was this something that just organically derived, like the, the interest sort of just popped up? Yeah, I, I didn't, uh, didn't grow up growing food at all. I grew up not in the suburbs, but, you know, we had a lawn. You know, I mowed the lawn as a chore for, the, for my family. And, um, yeah, and then... I got in my hometown in Athens, Georgia. Uh, I grew up going to different restaurants and being interested in food. But at the same time, also noticing that, you know, maybe some of the food that we consume regularly and lifestyle choices wasn't so, so great in terms of health and well-being. So but I also at one point was studying outdoor education. And doing a lot of hiking and spending a lot of time climbing mountains or rock climbing and doing these things. So it was much more of a fun approach to being outside and being outdoors. And that was great. But I joined an environmental club in undergrad and was starting to think more, well, like if we, you know, we can enjoy nature and be in nature. But I think there's a certain point, too, where we have to do a little bit more, not necessarily to completely protect nature. I studied some 
green philosophy classes and I had these different like moments of books that I read that were really interesting for me. But then uh, I transferred to from a smaller school to Appalachian State University in North Carolina and realized I'd, they had a sustainable development program. I'd, that sounds really interesting. It aligns with the environmental club that I was involved in in the smaller school. And why don't I try that? I could maybe minor in it. But um, found myself thinking, well, maybe I could, maybe I could also uh, get a sustainable development uh, major as well. Um, going and that um, that course, it was necessary to study a language, and it was also necessary to choose, you know, a major within a major. I guess a, a class that you know, would suitable for me. And I thought agriculture, you know, I've never grown really anything. So it was agroecology was actually the, the program that I was in. And uh, agroecology's class, I think the 101, the first class, we ended up reading a book called The One Straw Revolution. It was written by a Japanese farmer in, I think, in the 60s or 70s. It was a manuscript that eventually got published. And that book was a real revolution. It was called the one straw revolution, but it really got me thinking about humans and the relationship with nature even to a greater level. Plus, I had to study a language, so I chose Japanese as the language because I'd, I'd studied Spanish in high school and I thought it was just a, some neat and new opportunity and a, and a bit of a challenge too because Japanese isn't always easy. And, and then it led me to come to Japan in 2010 as an intern or as a woofer. Uh, I did... Uh, volunteering on farms it's worldwide opportunities on organic farms i did that in 2010 in nagano for 10 weeks and i wasn't just farming but i was also interacting with a lot of people in the community and the place i worked at was doing a lot of really amazing woodwork diy kind of stuff and it was just impressive to see like what you can do uh, on a smaller scale and and what the community was like and I hadn't really ever had any of those kind of experiences and I hadn't really worked that hard until I came to Japan too. So that was a bit of an opening experience. For me. Yeah, yeah, I bet. That's kind of what brought me to Japan. And I applied for the JET program in 2011 and uh, did that for two years. And during that two years, I started this plot where I now farm on. Now I did that as a hobby initially. Yeah, well, it's interesting. It sounds like to me that at least initially, you're kind of guided by an interest in the environment, mm. started there, and then you get into some of these classes, you discover something else, you discover some literature, some books, some things that really resonate with you. And all the while that you're going through this, it just sounded like to me that you had an open mind. You're just taking it in, reflecting on it, what resonated, what, what was sticking, and then following that further. And then that would lead on to something else and to something else and to something else. And I guess, lo and behold, that's where you are right now. Does that sound accurate? Is that? Yeah, accurate? that's it. Yeah. Staying open, having an open mind to what kind of comes, you know. Well, I think it does sort of fit that mold of, you know, the, the pattern that I've been experiencing with all these guests on this program is, is similar to that, to, to a lot of other people. It's just keeping an open mind and, you know, allowing these opportunities to develop and just reflecting, as I said, on some of these things and finding out what you like, what you don't like, where you want to go with things. And uh, you never know where it's going to take you. Mm -hmm. Well, I do have another segment here, Q&A Discovery. You can kind of just continue this back and forth. And, you know, in researching for this talk, you kindly provided this link, this YouTube link about Pitchfork Farms, this plot of land that you've been working for a while now. 
And for me, at least, it represented something you know truly unique and, and different. And you know, like I, I think again, as I said before, a lot of people have this vision or an idea of what a farm is. Like there's a mental imagery or model in people's minds. But what I was discovering in this video is very different. The way you operate your farm, the way it looks. And I know this could be a challenging question, but maybe you could sort of attempt to paint a picture of, of, of what makes your farm unique. What makes it distinct? What, what does it look like, essentially? Yeah, we don't have a lot of flat land here on the farm. We're located on a hillside just above the uh, inland sea. And at first, it was an abandoned plot. And over time, we've had to work with what we have, uh, essentially. So it's sloped and it was a citrus orchard at one point, probably monoculture citrus. And I knew that I didn't really want to go that route and grow just one thing. And in order also to pay for the trees and get started, we were starting to plant trees uh, at one point, I guess three years ago, but really over the last seven or eight years, we brought in goats and now sheep to kind of clear the spaces we want to work in and on on hillsides again and then we'll integrate crops into those in between those uh, orchard rows as well so give a little bit more space but that's what helps create the biodiversity on the place so at any one time you can walk around the farm and have 15 or 20 or 30 or more edible plant species there the flatland that we do have we do what maybe is considered market gardening or organic farming there it's the, the flatter spaces and they're they're usually about 50 feet to 30 feet of vegetable production and several rows of that. and so that's kind of the mix of the farm right now but the farm is located where we live as well we took a citrus storage shed and renovated that and made it our house too so it's a kind of homestead property as well i'd say that it's kind of the central location for the farm and everything kind of moves out from there moves in and out from there. One of the things I took away from that video when I was watching it, like the amount of plants, I suppose, growing in one section, one area. So like you could have one edible plant here growing and then right beside it, you have another. It wasn't like that neat, orderly sort of traditional approach. Maybe that's what you have in that, that flatter part of your land. Maybe that's what you're referring to, but maybe up in the other sections, it's, it's kind of intermixed at different points. And that, that was really interesting to me. I think you were explaining about some of the reasons for that and why that is beneficial to some of the plants that are growing amongst one another. And maybe you could share that with uh, with listeners as well. Right. I think uh, there's this kind of idea that we have companion planting. So certain plants will interact with other plants. And of course, maybe both positively and neg negatively, because you know if you have some plants that are going to shade out one crop too much, but we have certain crops too that because we don't till or if we've taken out the weeds over time we have a lot of crops that will actually just fall and reseed themselves and just pop up as volunteers i would say and then we have to make a choice well do i keep it do i take it out because it could affect the plant that i'm wanting to grow in many ways we don't necessarily have to take everything out and maybe the timing of each one as one's coming up the other one is getting harvested so it's going to come out anyway so i get to see that a lot those interactions all the time on the farm like today i was just weeding a little bit uh, or hilling up my potatoes some of them were weeds that might be difficult to deal with as they get bigger but then there's still kale and Japanese mustard greens and stuff growing around the potatoes as well. So it's like 
do I keep it? Do I take it out? Oh, do I take it back down to the house to have breakfast? Uh, you know, I, there's these options that, whereas if it was just one crop, well, we would consider all other crops uh, invasive or problematic or weeds, but a lot of these provide something. And because we have the animals as well, a lot of those, uh, the weeding that we do do go towards those animals, uh, their, their food, whether it's the chickens, the pigs, the sheep, or the ducks, they all eat all of those plants. So. What strikes me is it's well thought out. In, in a sense, you're planning some of these things, and then also it's in the moment where you're making these decisions mm-hmm. on whether to, to keep this or to pull it out. And it all sort of plays into like this approach where you're not relying on pesticides, herbicides, you're, you're, you're going organic, you're being a little bit more clever, perhaps, in your approaches to minimize some of these issues and using animals as well to kind of manage the farm too. It's just a, it's a different approach. Like I said, that when I was watching this shattered that image of what this traditional sense of what a farm is. So I'm going to put this link into the show notes so everyone can have a, have a good look at it. Okay. Well, I do have this other question here too. And again, you've already mentioned this point of your entry into Japan. And I'd be curious about the region or the area you know, where you eventually decided to settle. So in this place, Mukashima, Onomichi, which is in Western Japan. And, I, you know, what, what drew you to that particular region for one? And then also too, I'd be curious about like any recollections you had at the time thinking, you know, like, well, yeah, I could definitely make a go of this here or, you know, some of the trepidation that you might've felt at least initially. Yeah. So when I applied for the teaching program, I, didn't have a choice really it was either going to be i guess in the paper i wrote hokkaido or shikoku the farmer that i read about was from shikoku so i thought i could maybe do something similar to what he did in shikoku and do the citrus orchard that he was producing yeah i was selected to come to uh, onomichi the classes uh, and the schools that i taught at were on mokaishima as well and i sat down in several cafes in onomichi talking with people and asking about land that might be available to grow in. And a friend of a friend uh, introduced me to the land that I have, uh, have now. And that when I got to the land, it was it had been abandoned for some time. Of course, the owner was still coming and going a little bit. And the storage shed, uh, the house that I live in now, had tools in it, some equipment. But it was kind of minimal at the time. But I looked at the shed multiple times after I finished my work. And there was kind of the tiny house kind of boom or movement, you know, that was being talked about a lot in 2011 and 2012. And I really thought, well, I, yeah, I could stay here. I could live, I could live there if I, if I wanted to. And uh, thought more and more about it. And actually, I, I did move to Shizuoka at one point. And I worked there for one year worked at a private company and it didn't really work out as well as I thought it might. And I thought, oh, maybe I'll leave Japan. You know, maybe this isn't right. This isn't the thing to do. But I uh, thought about it more. I said, okay, well, I'll give Onomichi another shot. I'll come back here, talk with friends who are still living here. And I thought maybe there's there's a good community there. Maybe it's the right place to be. And the land was still available. You know, I knew that there was still an opportunity to work on this land and work on the property. So yeah, I gave it another shot and started renting it again as soon as, more or less as soon as I got back. And then I guess that was 2014. So then in 2017, we committed to purchasing the property. 
And I think what's kind of kept me here, like literally putting down roots, uh, <laughs> yeah. and literally because of the trees and we've got plants in the ground now that even if I were to leave here now, I think because of this natural farming me- method that we're doing, if I were to leave and come back, the same overgrown property that we once had wouldn't go back to the way it was. It, there would still always be some food here. I understand too that you've sort of embedded yourself within the community there. You've been accepted by a lot of the locals. Mm. Uh, you've been playing a part, you know, w- within that local community. So much so that some elderly Japanese individuals have been coming up to you with other opportunities. I mean, Japan is an aging population, and some of these people just can't carry on. They can't manage the property that they have. Maybe you could fill listeners in on, on what's been taking place in in that sense. Yeah. So right now, I think uh, Japan has some of the Year on year, the amount of abandoned farmland is increasing. And in our areas, particularly, I've, uh, there's been a research paper published through uh, Hiroshima University that said that even these hillside properties, because they are somewhat remote, you can't get machinery and tools, uh, heavy digging tools or uh, tilling or tractors into them. Some of the first to go abandoned and stay abandoned. And I think maybe in some ways this could be better. Because, you know, forests can regenerate and grow over a long period of time. But there are still a lot of issues with these. I mean, because a lot of them are left unattended or, you know, partway through the work. Um, so there's you know, oftentimes uh, debris or garbage or waste from the previous uh, farmers, too. So we have to think about that, that we still do somebody to go through and help and manage. And, uh, yeah, we were often approached about yeah purchasing or renting or borrowing more land currently there's another plot we're growing it's off the farm a little bit uh, of a drive like 10 15 minutes from the house but we're growing wheat and fava beans over there and we'll grow soybeans there this year and then recently we purchased a space so that we could uh, park a bit closer to the farm and uh, the owner of that had seen us on a small a TV program uh, at one point, and she said, "Well, if, if you buy this, I've got this other land. Well, like when you do the contract, I'll just include it into the wow into really? deed." And yeah, so we have a whole another piece of property now that we haven't really done anything on, but it was free, you know, more or less uh, free. We're lucky in some sense that like maybe now is the right time or the right opportunity. Because if we hadn't purchased that, or if it would continue to become, you know, more and more abandoned, and and in the community too, I think my community, uh, I've lived here now in this village for twelve years, almost, or just more and more opportunities. I think where people are seeing what we're doing, and I want to support us in that way. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's definitely been gaining some some traction in that sense. It sounds like, but also too, I mean, you've had media. Coming, like you said, in television programs, but even like the national broadcasters, like NHK programs that have come and right. featured your farm and right. done. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, I mean, it's it's not just within your local community. You know, it's, it's, this is across Japan. Like there's interest in this type of lifestyle, mm-hmm. perhaps. And your, your farm is becoming a bit of a case study for people to kind of look at. And it's interesting because it's not somebody who's Japanese doing it as well. So there's different perspectives and different slants on it all. Well, in light of that, so the last question within the segment, I'd love to know about any big revelations that you've had in doing this and, and 
you know, what does this work, what does this lifestyle come to mean for you? It's a bigger question, I know. <laughs> yeah, with the farm, I think, and it's always, I mean, it's, it's kind of always growing. I don't know if it will always continue to grow and expand. The work doesn't really end. I mean, I think uh, there, there are days where if you have um, maybe a more typical nine to five, I mean, I know, although these days, you know, you might still have emails coming in and you might still need to do some things or stay overtime. Um, but yeah, the work doesn't doesn't necessarily finish and maybe that's a good thing in some ways and for some people it's very that's something they don't want anything to do with you know and having i mean having not only the plants but the animals keep us keep us on our toes and keep us uh you know committed yeah committed you know each each and every day and uh and i think it's the garden oftentimes can be and farm oftentimes can be somewhat of a reflection of what's going on in our lives too if things are getting hectic personally then sometimes the garden also feels hectic and but then at the same time when the garden is in good shape and looking good and you're feeling more and more confident uh in it and what's going on i think that's that's a huge uh, takeaway from um just uh that interaction it's a really interesting perspective i've never heard anything like that before kind of like you being reflected in in the farm itself and maybe the farm being reflected in you that you're that deeply embedded with it yeah it certainly feels like it like an extension all right well we are shifting over into this middle segment something called the water cooler story and here i just ask guests to indulge listeners with a story related to their work and i'd love to hear what you have for us today thomas yeah going with interactions you know with our farm and with nature and you know, I think there's a lot of positives can also be, you know, the, the harder part. I, I sometimes could come off as nature is this great and the wonderful thing. You can't gloss over some of the challenges yeah. too, right? But the challenges, I mean, uh, just yesterday, walking through uh, one pathway that we've worked to create, we're working kind of to work in and with nature, but I saw a giant wild boar which um, mm. they're, they're not only a problem for rural people nowadays, they're coming into urban areas as well. And They are, yeah. And they're they, dangerous. And they're dangerous. And they are hungry animals. And they love sweet potatoes. And it's one of those parts that, you know, you can see it scoping out the property, you know, walking around the fence line. And this war was... It had to be a hundred kgs, or you know, close to 170, 200 pounds. It was big. It was big, and you know, when we had this, and where I used to, when I started, I didn't have the fences. I didn't have the infrastructure in place. I think I built my first fences with bamboo and some old uh, roof material. That I was, I think this is going to be, this is going to work. Yeah, yeah. There's no, <laughs> there's no stopping it. You know, and. But we've also learned that, you know, the boars are now, they weren't here before. They swam to Makaishima or the, the, these uh, cycling bridges that they put for the Shimanami Kaido, this major cycling route. They now walk across the bridges. So that's, that's one of the uh, 
one of the challenges, but it really paints a picture that we're really we're living at the base of a mountain and we're constantly you know, interacting with nature and for better or for worse. And sometimes with the boars, there's, there's, um, there are some victories, I would say. There are some times where we, uh, my wife, she has a hunt, hunting license. We, we do trap. Um, we do try to manage or maintain these. But I don't think we'll ever catch a uh, a boar of that size in one of these well, traps. They, yeah, I got to say, as somebody who hikes and all around different parts of Japan, I mean, you see those cages, like massive, massive steel cages. And if you chat with any of the locals, I mean, they'll, they'll tell you stories of how these boars are like somehow are like fighting their way outside of like they bust through these these massive steel bars. Like this is like a jail cell, essentially. And somehow these things are breaking through. And busting out yeah. like that that speaks right. to the power and the rage that uh that can come i suppose when uh, when they're up against yeah. it so yeah i mean yeah i don't envy in that sense of having to, to deal with them because they can be a they can be a handful from what i've heard and last year i i had some fences i had electric fences that we were using but we decided to move them and take them out so i had one property one area that i chose not it was a one of these abandoned plots, I chose not to grow anything in. Mm. Well, the borer came through that property and we had some newly planted citrus trees. And I think he, it knocked one over. But actually, what it did, uh, one, of the, one of the newer trees, it's just, it's one year. It's, um, you're guaranteed to have losses. I mean, again, going back to climate, you, you know, it could be really hot one year and you might lose a few trees. So you just come back and replant. But the borer got through and tilled up the property for us. And uh, in the last several years, I've been saving a lot of different seeds of kales and daikon radishes and uh, Japanese mustard greens and carrots. And I had all these extra seeds. I just didn't have time to plant. And and also we save a lot of seed too. So I end up with more seed than I really need. So in the pockets that the boar had now dug up to find earthworms, I just started throwing Throw out in. seeds in the pockets and created this, you know, semi wild orchard that's now in this season it's all gone to flower it's shot up all of its uh seed pods and it's about to fall again we're about to hit the rainy season so now i've used essentially the the boar's power of digging to plant the next garden for there you go. the next there you go. season so finding the the positive and you know, sometimes. Yeah. Yeah. I guess it's that, that degree of lateral thinking as well. And and not viewing it strictly as a pest. like, well, okay, well, how can I work with it? How is this guy going to help me out? And, uh, yeah, yeah, that's really clever. I really like that. Yeah. It's, it, it it worked out (laughs) in this, we'll see, we'll see through the summer, the next, uh, the next challenge. Right. 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 Keeping on your toes probably. Yeah. Okay. Mm All right, well, moving on to a pretty good clip here. We're approaching our last segment here, Thomas, and something called the crystal ball segment. And as the name implies, we're looking forward to future trends, predictions, so on and so forth. And more times than not, this segment tracks back to things like technology. And I'd love to know about your relationship with that, because on the one hand, I can see how the work that you do is, is very natural. You know, you're not using herbicides, as I said before, pesticides. You're really trying to just work the land and, and like the, the example you're just giving there, you know, take advantage of the opportunities as they rise. But also too, a lot of your education and introduction to this approach to farming 
is built off science. It's built off, you know, shared understandings of, of how to, to manage the earth. And, and invariably, technology is part of that in some way, shape, or form. So again, I'd love to hear it from you. Like, what, what is your relationship with technology and, and farming as a whole? Yeah, I think currently, and going, going back to the undergrad, you know, looking at the appropriate technology, you know, um, now that I'm managing this farm, and it's quite a big space at this point, it's me and my wife, and occasionally we have some uh, help, either volunteer, interns, paid staff, etc. But we have a lot of great tools uh, that are modern that really work well. Uh, I think one of the best investments I've made is, you know, one of these eighteen volt battery electric wheelbarrows. You know, it's 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 simple, but it's so appropriate because we're on a slope. You know, I'm able to manage it. And that same system that powers my wheelbarrow, it's now powers my uh, chainsaw and drill and all these tools for the DIY, the renovation. And if you go back 100 years ago, people didn't have access to such energy. And uh, I think going ahead too, thinking about the region, thinking about what's unique to uh, the, the inland sea and Hiroshima, it's one of the sunniest places in Japan. Uh, especially in uh, Makaishima, when it says it's going to rain, it does not rain usually. So we we have a lot of sun, and so solar plays a big role in our future. You know, in terms of energy and energy efficiency, I think they're very much related to tech. That's very much related to technology, and storing that and saving that. We've uh, we've also uh, put in some small scale solar for um, lighting for. Uh, batteries that uh, we hook up to pumps because our farm is pretty much water fed. We have one well on the property and that's how we water. So we're taking advantage of storing and capturing rainwater, which is another energy transformation and then providing that for our crops when they need it the most. And th those are things that seem to work. Now going ahead, what else could we do with technology? And, you know, I think uh, some things could be more, you know, maybe a bit more automated. And that goes into the sales side of farming. Uh, that's one thing that I haven't really looked into, but talking with my uh, friends and uh, family about that is they're incorporating some a bit more automation in terms of sales and and so that you maybe you don't have to you know, send an email every every time you get one or two orders. You, some of that can be somewhat automated in, in some ways. And these these are. I think very close or very near in, in the next several years we'll be doing that. I think those are the main the main points, uh, I would say. Yeah, it sounds like both yeah. realms, you know, the business side, maybe even the marketing side to a degree as well, you know, that like managing those aspects, but then even on the farm itself and starting to adapt and adjust and find ways of, of easing that burden or that load at times. Can't see drones or robots anytime soon. Uh, in our farm, I guess drones, you know, I kind of sometimes we have a, a deck above our sunroom. And if I could fly a little drone and open up a latch and let the sheep out, sometimes it would <laughs> certainly make I wouldn't have to walk up the hill uh, or something like that. Yeah, no doubt. Yeah, and just to see see what's going on on the farm, too. And I think that's another thing that technology can play a role is um, you can get a lot more data and information with with these kind of tools that would tell us maybe where we could put some of the fertilizer that we're using or 
allow us to see, you know, the health and of the the new citrus trees that we've put in yeah. and what we can yeah. do with them. So it's really interesting. I mean, that that the whole agricultural sector and how it's evolving. I have a bit of a spoiler alert, but I have another guest coming on probably within a few weeks or so, and she's involved with a startup in Thailand. And she also has a history within Japan. I think she did her PhD in Japan related to agriculture. But her company is based on using satellite imagery and zooming in on fields and farms and pinpointing the best time to be laying crops down or cross-pollinating or whatever people are doing with these fields. And uh, yeah, I mean, really fascinating, absolutely fascinating stuff. So, I mean, there's there's so many different spectrums of, I suppose, where agriculture is moving towards and depends on the scale, certainly. But uh, yeah, interesting to follow nonetheless. Mm-hmm. So, and getting back to your farm, this is maybe the last question, I guess, but how do you envision things moving forward for you? Like, do you, would you like to continually you know, build out your farm. It sounds like that's been happening, whether you've been sort of planning it or not, you've been approached with different opportunities that almost, almost are too good to pass up. Do you want to mm-hmm. keep growing it out that way? Or do you feel you're going to reach a point where like, well, you know, there's only so much I can manage here. You know, where, mm-hmm. where do you stand on that? Currently we have a lot of people who, yeah, you mentioned the lifestyle. They're somewhat interested in this. I think the last several years more people have tried to, maybe moved a little bit away from urban areas not to say that it's a huge jump and i don't think it really will be um, tokyo will continue to urbanize uh, like it like it is and, and i think that's just one other natural progress that we're seeing but um we do a lot of workshops and tours uh recently we have these events at the farm and we're i mentioned renovating a new property and we're currently renovating that. My wife's company will be working out of there. And then we're going to be trying to sell uh, more produce uh, from the farm uh, through the space as like a cafe or uh, kind of farm to table uh, restaurant. And uh, that's one plan uh, in the future. And the space is really unique and neat. It's got um, a cellar in it. And so we have these other ideas uh, how to best use that. So we're really kind of, it's gone gone faster actually to find the space and get uh, things going than I thought but uh, we're in the build out phase right now still but in terms of growing more and more uh, produce right now and expanding farming this year was why I said it's more of a sustaining maintaining kind of year I didn't plant any citrus trees and uh, I'm just trying to sustain and maintain what we have but I can see in the future where we could be a bit busier but just from a different angle and different approach. And that's what I'm hoping we'll be able to, um, to do going forward, right in the same village. So the, the, the new house or new property is a minute walk away. So that's, that's also really great. Well, how exciting, how exciting. I mean, it sounds like, uh, you know, things are developing and yeah, a lot of different possibilities there. So yeah. This might be a nice point to, to draw things to a close, but I gotta say it's been a really you know, delightful conversation and I've really enjoyed it. So thanks so much for all your insights, Thomas. Yeah, thank you. Thanks for having me on. Well, for those interested in learning more about Thomas and his farm, you can do so via his company website at www.pitchforkfarms.jp. And it can also be found on Instagram, Facebook, and LinkedIn. And for reference, all this information, including links, will be included in the show notes. And I mean, if you like today's show, please be sure to tell a friend and share. It helps way more than you can ever know. 
And yeah, I would certainly encourage everyone to do so. You can also rate, review, and subscribe wherever you access your podcast. And lastly, I would encourage you to go on over to YouTube. I do have a channel over there and you can check out video conversation highlights, which includes some of the imagery associated with the talk itself. And uh, you can kind of take in the, the, the information in a different manner. And if you do go over there, I would really, really appreciate a like or subscribe. And then finally, don't forget to join us on the next episode of Life As A, where we'll continue to explore and unearth the details of professions and the people behind them. I'm your host, Christopher Schoenwald. Until next time, stay curious about life and living. Thank you.